Misasha, I have a question for you that if you're a white identifying woman who's listening right now, you'll want to sit with for a moment. How many times have you said you're Japanese and have been called exotic? Yeah, too many times. You know, I've had white men's reactions to me visibly change when I said I was Japanese and their usage of the word exotic triple. I've also been privy to then their stories about their other Asian girlfriends, which P.S. gross. Yeah. So given that we all collectively need to talk about what we've personally experienced, what our Asian female friends have experienced and the history that we as a country don't want to talk about, which is namely how Asian women are seen by Americans and in particular white men, because more often than not, we're invisible, exotic, sexual toys. And we're done with that BS, to be quite clear, because what happens when we don't talk about it? Atlanta. Dear White Women supports the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 education campaign, We Can Do This, efforts to increase education and awareness about COVID-19 vaccines. Whether due to language barriers or lack of access to health care, many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. Please visit vaccines.gov for more information. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So let's go back in time for a minute to Atlanta and the murders of eight people, including six Asian women, back in March of 2021. The one that they just said would be charged as a hate crime. We were horrified. And it turns out we should have been. In a press conference following the shooting spree, Captain Jay Baker, who was a spokesperson for the Cherokee County, Georgia Sheriff's Office, said that the suspect claimed the attack was not racially motivated. Instead, the suspect had claimed a, quote, sexual addiction, heavy air quotes here, as explanation for his alleged targeting of the spas he reportedly frequented to, heavy air quotes, take out that temptation. Baker may not have said it explicitly, but the message was clear. The motive for those shootings was supposedly based in misogyny, not racism. But as many Asian American women pointed out in the wake of that attack, racism and misogyny reinforce a shared narrative. And due in large part to history, Asian American women often experience that connection between the two in a unique and troubling way. You know, a more simplified view of Asian women as objects of desire, or even worse, a, quote, moral contagion, is a narrative that dates back as far as the early 19th century. And this is according to Judy Tzu Chun Wu, who's the director of Humanities Center and professor of Asian American Studies at UC Irvine. She said in the Time Magazine's article around the Atlanta shooting, quote, this act of violence goes back to the ways in which Asian women especially are perceived as having this kind of dangerous form of sexuality that is affecting American society. You know, she added in that piece that perception did not evolve by accident. And in fact, the U.S. government has played a major role in cementing hypersexualized stereotypes of Asian women with both state and federal legislation. Anyone getting uncomfortable yet? Bear with us. Because we've discussed the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and notably, that is one of the few Asian American milestones that is taught in many U.S. history classes. But a little-known piece of restrictive legislation preceded it, and it was called the 1875 Page Act. It was one of the earliest pieces of federal legislation to restrict immigration. 
And it was spurred on by the white majority's fears that an influx of approximately 300,000 Chinese immigrant workers would take their jobs. So the PAGE Act prohibited the recruitment of laborers from China, Japan, or any, quote, oriental country who were not brought to the United States of their own will or who were brought for lewd and immoral purposes. And as Time notes, the bill also stopped the immigration of Chinese women into the United States. I mean, specifically, it blocked, and this is a quote, the importation of the United States of women for the purposes of prostitution. You know, at the time, Asian women were superficially profiled as prostitutes and denigrated as being unclean. Just the previous year, an extremely contentious lawsuit had begun over the detainment of 22 Chinese women who were accused of being lewd and debauched after arriving at the San Francisco Harbor without husbands. So in practice, this new law, the PAGE Act, allowed immigration officials wide leeway to keep them out of the country. The PAGE's act of exclusion of women was deliberate. And in doing so, it had another repercussion. It prevented Chinese men from starting families which was, quote, a conscious part of trying to restrict Asian immigration, according to Wu. Like, can you imagine if we did that to the Italians, the Irish, the Germans, any other immigrant group, anybody? Just imagine how emasculating that must have been to be unable to become fathers because of governmental policy and then struggling with increasingly limited job opportunities. Well, hold on. I'm going to back up for a second. Unable to become fathers because of governmental policy, because keep in mind, at that point, interracial marriage was not permitted. Right. And then struggling with increasingly limited job opportunities. And for the relatively few Asian women in the U.S., imagine how horrifying it would be to have the assumption made that the only reason you'd come into the U.S. is for a lewd or a moral reason. So that was terrible, right? But that didn't end there. In the 20th century, U.S. policy continued to reinforce these hypersexualized stereotypes about Asian women, especially as the country expanded its military presence in Asia. And if you remember, we discussed in episode 113 how the U.S. went to Asia first. This is part of that story that doesn't paint the U.S. in such a great light, but it's a part that we really need to talk about. Military culture of that time viewed drinking, gambling, partying, and visiting brothels as a common, even necessary, pastime of servicemen abroad. During conflicts in Japan, Korea, Vietnam, the Philippines, and elsewhere, which is like a large percentage of our major 20th century conflicts, the local women were on the receiving end of all of those assumptions. According to Ellen Dion Wu, who's an associate professor at Indiana University at Bloomington, she says the overall pattern is that there are these places that become a site for warfare and militarization. And local women who are living through this devastation don't usually have a lot of options, especially women who are working class or poor. And this is according to Time magazine. So after World War II, U.S. military authorities in Korea began taking control of some of Japan's military-run brothels, where an estimated 200,000, and you know, that number bears repeating, 200,000 enslaved comfort women were deployed to provide sexual services to Japanese troops. So if you don't know about comfort women, you should. There's a book called The Rape of Nanking, which is a great but triggering book. And it talks about the subject that the Japanese government never taught its citizens about. So my mom is Japanese and she grew up in the Japanese school system, not knowing anything about these comfort women, not knowing anything about the things that happened in Nanking until she came to the U.S. and we talked about the history. But before we jump to finger pointing at a different country for not teaching their own sordid history to their own people, 
Remember that it's sort of like how the American education system limits mention of the enslavement of Black people and the horrors it has participated in abroad, just like these comfort women. We have those same problems. So going back to what you were saying, the U.S. also established its own camp towns in the 1940s as military authorities worked with the South Korean government to license areas with bars and clubs that are all near U.S. military bases. And these camp towns were set up specifically to entertain American troops, and that included sex work. In 1965, 85% of GIs surveyed reported having been with or been out with a prostitute. And again, going back to the demonization that we have right now of sex work in this country, just remember this. This was in 1965. This was not that long ago that 85% of GIs reported that they've been with a prostitute. So going back to the woman you mentioned earlier, Judy Tsuchin Wu, she said there was what was described as a military sexual complex. I mean, you might have heard of the prison industrial complex. It's the same linked ideas and equally bad. She says, you had a large number of American men going abroad and a plan by the military to create rest and recreation sites where men can go off and blow off steam, if you will. In those sites, it's Asian women who are providing sexual gratification. So the women who were recruited to work at camp towns were often orphans or impoverished women with no other way to make a living. Camp town women often found themselves trapped where they were charged rent for the rooms in which they serviced men and were expected to pay for all of the items needed to entertain the American soldiers. Does this sound perhaps a little bit like sex trafficking, anybody? A little bit. This is what our country did. So Kara Jabola Carolus, the executive director of Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women, wrote in a tweet following the mass shooting in Atlanta, white men have been trained, peer pressured, and hazed by the U.S. military to release their anxiety, self-loathing, and hatred of the enemy onto Asian women's bodies. From Olangopo to Okinawa for generations, this is what we are up against. And let's just pause to take this one in. Olangopo being a city in the Philippines and Okinawa being a major U.S. military base in Japan. If I think, if you take one key thought away from, or one like learning, historical learning away from this episode, I think it's that, what you just said, Sarah. Though I may have mispronounced the name of the city in the Philippines, and I apologize if I have. Okay, minus that, but the general theme. (laughs) So as wars ended, many American troops came home with their wartime perceptions of Asian women as submissive and sexually available. But it's important to note that the fetishization of Asian women wasn't limited to military zones because it would also manifest itself in popular culture, where stereotypes dominated depictions of Asian and Asian American women, resulting in two binary and highly sexualized tropes known as the lotus flower and the dragon lady. Have you seen those? Like, were you aware of that? Because as soon as you said the dragon lady, I got the image. I totally understood who you were talking about, but I hadn't actually processed lotus flower before. And it also reminds me of the two stereotypes we have for black women, the mammy and the sapphire. Do we even have two clear stereotypes like this for white women? Like, I can't think of any, but it's just interesting to notice that difference that we have these character caricatures of women of color, two opposing ones, especially for women of color, but we don't have anything like that for white people, white women. That's really important to keep in mind. And You know, I had seen these, I just didn't know the terminology or the names for them, right? But I've known these tropes, right? And I think once we start talking about them, you will too. So the lotus flower or the China doll trope reinforced stereotypes about Asian women being submissive, sexually subservient, feminine, and meek. Such characters often meet tragic ends. 
as in Madame Butterfly, which was the 1904 Puccini opera about a Japanese woman who kills herself after her white American lover abandons her and their son. Perhaps most notoriously, in Stanley Kubrick's 1987 film, Full Metal Jacket, a Vietnamese prostitute solicits two white American troops with a line that went mainstream in the late 80s when two live crew prominently sampled it in the song, Me So Horny. I instantly know what you're talking about. Yes. Yes. And that's not the only line actually from this film that you've probably heard, but these are always the lines that come back. The audio was also sampled by Sir Mix-a-Lot for his 1992 hit, Baby Got Back, and has since made appearances in movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and shows like The Family Guy, having become an easy laugh at the expense of Asian women. As Nancy Wang Yuan, a professor of sociology at Biola University notes, propositions that Asian women get in public all surround full metal jacket quotes. And they're horrible. And everyone knows them, even though that movie is rather old. But now it's part of society or culture in general, like life imitating art and imitating kind of an imagined life. So that's the China doll or the lotus flower trope. But in contrast, the dragon lady trope suggests that Asian women are deceitful, villainous and cunning, using their sexuality as means to manipulate and gain power, a female feminine embodiment of yellow peril. This trope historically is most associated with Anna Mae Wong, who despite being a groundbreaking actress, was relegated to playing dangerously wicked villainesses or exotic slave girls during her career in films like 1931's Daughter of the Dragon and 1932's Shanghai Express. More contemporary examples of this trope include Lucy Liu's violent assassin, Oren Ishii, from Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, Volume 1, and Lucy Liu's cold, sexually manipulative character, Ling Wu, on the television series, Ally McBeal. And the fact that you had to pull two of those examples from one actress, again, speaks to how few Asian female actors we have. And they're just starting, right? Like literally in the last few years, we finally see a much larger number of fantastic Asian actresses, female Asian actresses. So these are the racist tropes. And you know what? They're dangerous in and of themselves. But the harm that comes from these widespread stereotypes is even more damaging given what we just talked about, the severely limited representation of Asian American women in media. According to UCLA's 2020 Hollywood Diversity Report, in 2018, just in your head, guess the percentage of Asian people accounted for in all film roles. 4.8% were Asian. And that's in mainstream movies, okay? One 2002 study, though, they found over-representation of Asian women in victim roles in violent pornography. That makes me feel worse. Okay, yes, not better, worse. Yep. Yes, you can draw some direct lines here. So in the 1980s and 1990s, in terms of the real life repercussions, there was a huge boom in the mail order bride industry. I mean, talk about direct repercussion from such stereotypes. Men were upset about this rise of feminism and they began looking overseas for foreign brides who would abide by, quote, traditional values. And that's from Feely Lee, Director of International Projects at UCLA's Office of International Students and Scholars in a LA Times article in 1986. Like newspapers and magazine advertisements enticed male readers with gorgeous Pacific women and pearls of the Orient. And they were all dressed up and posed in highly eroticized cultural dress in what would soon become a multi-million dollar industry. If you look at those want ads, and this is from UC Irvine's Woo, if you look at those want ads, it's very much racialized and sexualized. 
So it's kind of a cultural mentality, but it's also expressed very concretely in terms of who's providing sex work and the market effects. It's not just art in people's heads, but it's actually expressed in people's realities. And so think about all these tropes that we just mentioned about Asian women and that along with the model minority myth, which we just discussed about in episode 114, is the false idea that Asian Americans are inherently more successful than other ethnic minorities. And then you have basically Asian and Asian American women simultaneously fetishized and despised, hyper visible as subjects of desire, but also disposable as people. Although the six Asian women who were killed on March 16th were not identified as sex workers, horrific jokes on social media after the shootings harken back uncomfortably to the discriminatory assumptions of the Page Act. For the victims, this fatal violence happened at the intersection of not only race and gender, but also class. Why were there older women having to work? at this stage, right? They still had to work. Three aspects that were central to the Page Act and the repercussions of which were still being felt today. Whether Asian American women are desired or hated or both, says Wu, they are not understood as and permitted to be fully human with their own agency and dreams. Let's think about the crimes reported by Stop AAPI Hate, which just released its latest report on May 6, 2021, noting that there were over 6,600 incident reports between March 19th, 2020 and March 31st, 2021 of hate directed against Asian people. Of those, almost 65% of those incidents were reported by women. Despite those findings, Sungyun Choi Morrow, whom I had the pleasure of being on a panel with and is the executive director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Fund, says that the degree to which Asian and Asian American women are specifically affected by hate and violence often goes unnoticed. We become invisibilized when we talk about crimes against Asian Americans, she said. It's really high time that we have a full conversation about our unique experiences and challenges because of how society views us specifically with this racialized gender lens. What's needed to address this problem is a systemic approach that acknowledges the threats that specifically Asian and Asian American women are facing, Choi Moro and others say. Because as long as Asian and Asian American women are overlooked, the kind of violence seen in these recent attacks predicated on the history that we just discussed prevalent in our country could very well happen again. And we hope that you stand with us when we say we're not here for that. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces.